0: This is The Guardian. I'm Jane Lee, and this is the full story. You'd be forgiven for forgetting that the Australian Greens appointed a new leader in February 2020. A lot was going on in the world back then, and has ever since. Longtime Greens MP Adam Bant took the reins, and since then, the party's been moving in a new direction.
1: They've moved to diversify and talk a lot more about social issues, progressive issues. I think they're even moving into into a newer phase of of trying to, to challenge as a legitimate, you know, third major force in Australian politics.
0: Today, as voters' concerns about climate change loom ahead of the next election, how will the Greens use the balance of power? It's Wednesday, the 16th of March. Josh, how has the Australian Greens Party evolved since it formed officially back in 1992?
1: Well, I think the, the the Greens really started, you know, as the name would suggest, very much as like a environmentalist sort of party.
0: Josh Butler is a political reporter at Guardian Australia.
1: Person a lot of people might sort of most associate with the Greens over the whole history would be, you know, Bob Brown from Tasmania. <laughs> And A lot of his work, a lot of his campaigning was around dams and forests and and, and, waterways and that sort of thing in Tasmania.
0: Bob Brown achieved national
1: prominence back in the 1980s when he led the battle against the Franklin Dam, a major hydroelectric project in a World Heritage wilderness. And obviously that's a really strong part of the Greens still at the moment. Obviously, they're all about climate change and the environment and, and, and you know, the natural world and, and and that sort of thing. But, you know, I think the party has really brought it out to be um, a, a far more, you know, holistic sort of left-wing progressive party. You know, they have really strong policies on issues around like childcare and, and wages and interdiscrimination and um, those sort of issues that, you know, really. I think sort of set them even further to the left of the Labor Party on, on a lot of things. So, I think the Greens in the last couple of years have really you know, broadened out their base and broadened out what they stand for and what they want to get done, not just to be a sort of you know, single issue environment climate party, but to be more of a you know, the most left-wing main party in Australia.
0: And how has that affected their political fortunes, that change or the slight shift in their identity over the years?
1: Well, I guess in the most basic way, they've, they've gotten more members into parliament. They obviously still have just the one MP in Adam Bant in the House of Representatives, but they do have you know nine senators in, in the Senate, which is not a small number. They have senators in most states in Australia. There are a number of green senators, and I think the fact they have broadened their issues that they deal with, you know, broadening the amount and type of people they're speaking to, you know, has led them to, to be the largest non-liberal Labor Party.
0: As you said, Josh, the Greens only have one MP in their House of Reps. That's Adam bant Tell me more about him, I know he took over as leader of the National Greens Party shortly before the pandemic. So some people might not know a whole lot about him.
1: Yeah, so um, Adam Bandt, you know, took over the party, took over as leader in in 2020. Um, you know, at the start of the pandemic, he was born in Adelaide. Uh, he went to his first demonstration in high school, uh, protesting against a visit of a nuclear powered ship to Fremantle. Uh, in his teenage years, he's actually a member of the the Labor Party, and, and later he worked as a uh, industrial and, and and public interest lawyer, becoming a partner uh, at Slater and Gordon. He had clients, including unions. And While he was still working for, for Slater and Gordon, um, he was pre-selected to stand as the Greens candidate uh, in the seat of Melbourne at the 2007 election. Um, he, he he lost that election initially, but he was pre-selected again uh, in 2010 and he, he won that seat and became the first uh, Greens candidate to win a seat in a general election. He's- held that seat of Melbourne since 2010. In the last election in 2019, he, he won with a primary vote of, you know, almost 50%, which is the highest primary vote for the Greens in the history of the electorate.
0: When Adam Bant took over the leadership of the Greens back in 2020, what did he say would be his key policy priorities for the party?
1: Well, he, he did come into the leadership role, um, speaking very heavily around climate issues. Obviously, you know he had calls to embrace what they you know called the the, the Green New Deal to address the climate emergency and, and and all these you know associated issues around you know what what does that mean for employment? What does it mean for wages? What does it mean for taxes? You know how does how does the climate crisis really affect not just the environment and and, and the climate, but what does it mean for the economy? What does it mean for workers? What does it mean for Uh, human rights and those sort of issues. And Ben reiterated a lot of those Greens focuses at the National Press Club. When I became leader of the Greens, I said that we were facing three crises, the climate crisis, an inequality crisis and a jobs crisis. I also said the answer to all three is a Green New Deal, a government-led plan of investment and action that creates secure jobs by investing in a clean economy and making Australia more equal. At the press club, he also talked about proposals around uh, building uh, new social housing, free childcare, Australian manufacturing, converting Australia to 100% renewable energy uh, and high-speed rail.
0: Right. So, he laid out a pretty ambitious plan. What have we actually seen from Adam Bant since then?
1: What we've seen from him has been, uh, I, I guess, a big focus on, you know, how all these issues, as I mentioned, you know, do feed into climate change. Climate change, renewable energy aren't just sort of goals in themselves. Like, Obviously, that is the goal, but it's how do you get there and how do you support people along the way. Um, but something we uh, haven't really seen and something that I think we will see through this election maybe is you know, a, a plan for how he would take the Greens from really still a minor party into something that might be a, a more major or more influential force in Australian politics.
0: Well, the upcoming federal election will be Adam Vance's first opportunity as leader of the Greens to grow the party's influence. What are the key policy ideas in their campaign?
1: Obviously, they are the Greens, so they're still focusing heavily uh, on the environment. Um, last month, uh, Bant proposed uh, what was a $19 billion plan to diversify uh, you know, traditionally fossil fuel mining towns and, and to subsidise um, the wages of coal workers who do transition out of um, the fossil fuel industry and into new jobs in, say, uh, critical minerals or, or green mining or those sorts of things.
0: And what we're uh,
1: proposing is that if a new employer in a new industry takes on a coal worker at the same wage then the government will step in and provide a wage subsidy to that employer to help offset some of the cost of moving over. So under the plan, um, workers would get uh, a decade or, or, or more of, of support, to have their wages subsidised in whatever new industry they go into. Um, they were talking about t- trying to transition towns traditionally, historically reliant on mining, into into new industries. There was $2.8 billion to diversify some of those communities, you know, including giving grants to towns to encourage new startups to move in there. There was a proposal for you know some new local authorities in these traditionally coal mining areas like the Hunter Valley, like Collie, like the Bowen Basin and, and Gladstone, uh, Latrobe Valley to, to help transition the towns to develop those revitalisation plans. Something that was really interesting and, and this is, I think, goes to the idea of how the Greens are sort of transitioning their party under Bant a bit. He he was really stressing when they made this announcement that, um, you know, I'm quoting that the coal workers haven't caused the climate crisis, you know, Quite a conciliatory tone um, relative to you know three years before that, when the former party leader Bob Brown ran his um, his own anti-Adani convoy um, through Queensland, and that was actually partly blamed for cratering the votes of not just the Greens but also also Labor in Queensland.
0: Yeah, I mean that's really interesting. That sort of speaks to what you were saying before about going beyond the traditional Greens base and trying to capture. Voters who perhaps wouldn't have considered the Greens for their vote in previous years.
1: Yeah, I think that's the thing. I mean, the the Greens, I think, have probably hit, are getting towards the upper limit of, 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 you know, inner city, uh, highly educated, you know, well-off people who are uh, calling for climate change action because they like it on an intellectual level. I mean, you know, this sort of goes to some of the tax and and economic policies they've been talking about in sort of saying, well, and it, it kind of goes to the Green New Deal sort of stuff as well of, of saying, well, yes, we have to radically transition the economy and transition society to um, deal with climate change and accept the realities of what's of what's coming with catastrophic, you know, world-changing climate change. But at the same time, there are, you know, human people that are, um, sadly could become sort of casualties of this in certain industries or certain areas. You know, if you if you uh, have the fortune to be born into, you know, a traditionally coal mining town and that's the the job that you sort of are almost forced into doing, I mean, it's not your fault that that's the part of the world that you've grown up in or lived in. So, I think that's sort of um, the basis of some of these policies of sort of saying, well, you know, you have to sort of bring people with you. You can't just, you know, roll the anti-Adani convoy through Queensland and tell people that they should feel bad about working in a coal mine. I think it's about sort of helping people and supporting people to to move on and, and find different jobs if they if they need to.
0: It's an interesting shift, especially considering that in this election, the Greens are up against a number of independent candidates who are campaigning on climate change. Can you tell us more about them?
1: Yeah, sure. So th- these would be the the Climate Two Hundred uh, independent candidates that uh, people would have been hearing a lot about. This election, we have an opportunity to fundamentally change our government's response to the climate crisis. Climate 200 wants to support candidates committed to a science-based response to the climate crisis and to restoring integrity to our politics. They are independent candidates, not Labor, not Liberal, not Greens, who are running in, you know, mostly traditionally inner city, liberal held blue ribbon seats. So Climate 200 is essentially a fundraising or sort of fund directing vehicle that's been convened by the very uh, wealthy Australian uh, businessman and and climate investor Simon Holmes of Court that donates money uh, basically to independent uh, candidates at at the election with a hope of advancing Australia's climate policy. So in the 2019 election, the group raised about half a million dollars and, and donated money to mostly independent candidates, they also donated to Adam Bant's campaign, but this election I think a lot of people do see them as a bit of a wild card in terms of you know where their votes will go how successful they will be and exactly I mean, exactly how much the money that Climate 200 is raising and directing to these candidates, what that will actually do I mean, in a political sense Labor and Liberal are both sort of a bit wary of them because they're going to be basically taking on a lot of um, quite moderate liberal candidates in in places like Wentworth and McKellar and and Goldstein and Melbourne and around those sort of areas, Higgins, but They're also, from a party political point of view, they're also sort of moving in on the political territory the Greens have long run on. So, I mean, obviously environment and climate change, but a lot of these candidates also are all about accountability and integrity. They're for a federal integrity anti-corruption commission, all those sort of things, which are, you know, territory the Greens have really had a, not monopoly, but they've had a, a big chunk of that for a long time, as long as the Greens have been around, really.
0: So do the Greens see these Climate 200 candidates as a potential threat to the party?
1: Adam Bant, he's denying that Climate 200 is sort of stealing their oxygen away from the Greens. I mean, he's saying that they're going to keep talking strongly about environmental issues no matter you know who else is in that space. But I think this has forced or, or at least you know, very much encouraged the Greens to take a stronger campaign into this election on issues of social democracy, not just on the environment.
0: It sounds like the Greens are sort of trying to distinguish themselves slightly from these new you know, environmentally focused, independent candidates. So, what are these issues of social democracy that we're talking about here? Are there policies attached to this new focus?
1: Yeah, look, I mean, absolutely. Uh, you know, the, so the Greens for a while have been talking about, you know, tax the billionaires and and that sort of thing. Um, late last year, the Greens released this policy that was all about uh, stopping very large companies claiming tax deductions for sending money offshore around intellectual property. They've already released plans for a. A forty percent tax rate for big companies making super profits, and uh, you know a big wealth tax on on billionaires as well. They've also proposed uh, toughening rules on uh, deductions around loans and charging withholding tax at the um, top company tax rates. Basically, the Greens are talking about: well, you know, if we can raise more money, we can you know make more services and give more services to people who are not doing that well. Give people mental health and and, and dental care and Medicare. But you know, they've also got. Other the, you know, measures around transparency, you know, abolishing fees to obtain company documents, um, you know, increasing penalties for promoting tax scams, and there are a lot of these issues that you know do make a lot of sense. They are backed by um, integrity experts, and they're backed by um, transparency experts, and that sort of thing. Um, but you know. For some reason, the Liberal and Labour parties haven't really been talking about this sort of thing. So I think there is a bit of fertile ground here for the Greens. You know, you, you wouldn't normally think of the Greens as being, you know, tax policy wonks. But um, yeah, I think that th- there is a really interesting and 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 deep catalogue of policy that they have been talking about here. I think which which, as you sort of talked about, does help. I guess differentiate them from some of those Climate 200 independents um you know obviously some of those are talking about transparency and integrity as well but yeah you know, these are really actually quite detailed policies the Greens put out yeah in fact the the parliamentary budget office said um including the cost of these transparency measures the Greens package would raise over 926 million dollars uh, over the next 4 years
0: yeah it's interesting that the Greens have such a detailed plan for policies despite being a minor party What hope do they have, though, of actually getting any of these through Parliament?
1: So, it's not necessarily about the Greens passing this legislation on their own. Well, it's, it's, it's about two things. It's, it's about, number one, it's sort of ambitious in, in a way of, of them sort of saying to, you know, the voters of saying, look, you know, if you vote in the Greens, here are some of the things that, that we can do. So, it's not necessarily about, you know, the Greens themselves um, putting up legislation and getting it passed, which, you know, technically there is a possibility of. The Greens could put something up and Labor could get behind it and it could, and it could, it could pass, um but uh, it, it's sort of about sending a signal really of sending a signal to the voters and saying here's what you know here's what the greens would do if you vote us in um but also saying to liberal or labor or the rest of the parliament you know these are you know our priorities these are um the things that we want to get done, um, you know, everyone goes into parliament looking to change the law or make things, you know, better in in their in their point of view. Um, you know, minor parties and in independents can still have some power and, and, and get things done and agitate for change. Maybe they can, you know, try and make the case for change. And that's why I think it's important that you do um, pay attention and scrutinise some of the things that the Greens say because, you know, this will be a very tight election. Um, most likely, um, it may be that, um, you know, the 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 independents or or crossbenchers might have uh, a fair bit of power in the end if there is a hung parliament or a very tight senate. So, um, you know, I, I think these are the things that the Greens are explicitly saying. They will try and push Labor on. They will try and agitate for change from the left.
0: Next, what's at stake for the Greens at the next federal election? Okay, so in order to effectively agitate for change, they're going to need to secure as many seats as possible at this election. Which seats are the Greens targeting this year? Well,
1: there are 10 seats that the Greens have highlighted as ones they want to uh, attack at this election and five that are their top priorities and five that are kind of the secondary priorities. But of, of those top five, three of them are, are held by Labor um, and, and a couple of them are in Queensland, which some people might not normally see Queensland as you know fertile Greens grounds, but the Greens are actually doing quite well. They've got some state MPs there, they do well uh, in local council elections um, and so, the seats they're after in Queensland are Griffith, which is held by a Labor MP, and uh, Ryan and Brisbane, which are held by uh, the Liberal Party. Bent is saying that you know he's really optimistic about these seats. He says the Queensland uh, ground game for the Greens is has really improved since twenty nineteen when they didn't really do all that well. Um, they weren't in the top two in I don't think any of those seats in 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 twenty nineteen. But you know he's saying that. They've got their local members there, the local state members um, who he claims haven't stopped campaigning since 2019. They've already knocked on thousands of doors. Um, and and there's some Greens people in Queensland who are you know, really optimistic about it as well. They've been telling me that, you know, maybe – with the Greens on the way up and, and, you know, the coalition potentially on the nose in some parts of the country, falling poll numbers for the coalition in, uh, in Ryan and Brisbane there could put those seats in what someone called me striking distance um, for the first time.
0: Okay, so that's the House of Representatives, Josh. What about the Senate? Where, where are the Greens focusing there?
1: Yeah, so the Greens are actually trying to pick up um, extra Senate seats uh, across the country. Um, they're hoping to get, uh, they've already got a, a Senator in Queensland. They're hoping to get a second one there. They're hoping to get a second Senator in New South Wales and a second one in South Australia. So if, if that all goes right, the Greens could have up to 12 Senators out of 76, which will be quite a big number. But that's obviously you know the, the best case scenario. Something they have to think about as well is, I mean, they could lose some of the seats they already hold in the Senate. I mean, there are um, some concerns that a few people have said to me about WA Senator called Dorinda Cox. She's the first Indigenous woman to represent WA in the Senate, um, but she hasn't really been in for that long. She came in as a a casual vacancy after um, another Green Senator from WA uh, quit partway through this term. Um, So she hasn't really been in that long. And there are concerns that the Greens might not have a lot of resources in WA at the moment in the WA state election, you know the Liberal Party was really wiped out by Mark McGowan being so popular over there. But you know the Greens actually lost a couple of state seats as well. Um, so they I think only have one. In, in the WA Parliament at the moment. Um, and, and state members are, are really important to sort of help marshal resources and volunteers and that sort of thing at the federal election. So there are concerns maybe that um, the Greens won't have uh, a lot or, or enough resources in WA to really mount a really good campaign to keep Dorinda Cox in there. Um, Adam Bant said to me that, you know, he said there's, there's no doubt the party does have a fight um, on its hands in WA, but he was really confident that, uh, that, that Dorinda Cox would get back in. She's their spokesperson on mining and resources. Bant says she will have a really big uh, role in the election for the Greens. But, yeah, there are a few people, um, you know, in in the Greens, in Labor, in WA, who've said that Labor might pick up the seat that she currently holds.
0: Mm. And, Josh, which seats do you think the Greens have a chance at taking this election?
1: Um, I think there'll be some really interesting races. I, I think Griffith, um, Ryan and Brisbane will be really, really interesting ones. I think with the recent floods, I think there could be a lot of people who are really um, upset with the coalition government and, and might be willing to shoot a few votes the Greens way. I think they'll be really um, interesting and, and close-fought races and all those seats are actually quite close too.
0: So, Josh, this is going to be an interesting election given all the different players here. We've got the two major parties, these new climate-focused independents. What's at stake for the Greens if they don't make further gains at this election?
1: I think this is one where the Greens... Not, not quite. You know, have to put up or shut up. But I think they, they, there's not going to be uh, a much better time for the Greens to sort of run a, a, and do really well here. I mean, the focus is really firmly on climate change for a lot of people, and it might not be, you know, the the number one issue at this election. Obviously, people are talking about national security and the economy and wages and and defence and, and and those sort of things. Um, but I, I think in this in this time, if we're talking about floods and natural disasters at the moment, um, I think the Greens. This is a really good opportunity for the Greens to to try and pick up their vote. I, I think they've been around for a long time and Adam Band has been around for a long time and they sort of have their votes gone up and down and up and down. Mm. I think for the Greens to really um, stand on their own as a, you know, legitimate uh, third force in Australian politics behind Labour and the coalition, they they really need to have a, a really strong showing at at one election. And I think this would be a really good one. I think that they they see the opportunity here. And, and I think if they don't pick up a lot of gains at, at this election, Look, it it sort of depends who wins the election. I mean, you know, I think the Greens would be really happy if they got a couple more in the Senate and and held the balance of power in uh you know under a Labor Prime Minister. But at the same time, I think you know if they if the coalition stayed in, I think you know a lot of the Greens rhetoric around you know kicking the coalition out and that sort of thing, there will be some questions around it, like whether the Greens are you know helping or or hurting a progressive cause. Um, by, you know, campaigning in Labor seats. I think those are the sort of questions that people will will ask after this election um, if if the coalition does stay in, for instance.
0: Thanks to political reporter Josh Butler. You can read more of Josh's reporting on the Greens and Climate 200 independence at theguardian.com, including his article Greens Target Queensland as New Battleground in Balance of Power Bid, which breaks down the party's strategy for the next federal election. This episode was produced by Carla Arnold, Jake Morcom, Joe Coning, and me, with additional production by Ellen Lebeder and Zoe Victoria. Sound design and mixing by Daniel Simo. Full Stories executive producers are Miles Martignoni, Gabrielle Jackson, and Laura Murphy-Oates. That's it for today. Catch you next time.